Simon, how's it going? Hi, Dave, it's brilliant. You know, um, I'll just touch on it because I haven't spoke about it too much. But Portsmouth, my team are flying, you know, absolutely fine. We're winning every week. We haven't lost a a game for months. Um, And we don't get to say that very often, especially after dropping out of the Premier League. So I'm going to lap it up at the moment. This is going to be a little mark in time, just so I can say, yeah, at the moment we're top of the league. So uh, I'm really, really pleased with that. And, um, yeah, weekend-wise, not much. Chilled one, which I think is quite important, you know, getting your feet up. I did watch Sound of Freedom. Have you seen that yet? No, not yet. I've heard about it, though. Any yeah, good? I was a bit, yeah, I was a bit, you know, the way that they were going on about it in America, and I thought, well, they're, they're making people not really go to the cinemas. I didn't get that sort of feeling why. And it wasn't until the statistics at the end that actually um, Americans um, – uh, the people who are buying into this trade of young children. And then I was like, oh, right, that's probably why they don't want people to. But I thought it was a very good film, well made, based on a true story. I, I quite enjoyed it. So um, uh, I, I did like watching that. And I also watched uh, Equalizer 3 with Denzel Washington. What's that like? <laughs> um, I it was the right. first two of those. So I, I, I laughed. It was, <laughs> it was all right. He's very skilled uh, as uh, some sort of hitman, but it was in Italian in certain bits. So it was a lovely setting. I think it was on the Amalfi Coast. So definitely makes you want to go to Italy and experience that sort of place. But no, so apart got, from that, mate, not much. How about yourself? Just been outside. I was just, the weather's been like uh, oh. a summer's day, hasn't it? It's incredible. Had uh, we went to a um, pumpkin patch on Saturday, which was very <laughs> interesting, but uh, it was hot like it was absolutely boiling. And it's like same to dad, I don't know where, um, what it's been like with you guys, but it's been so hot here, like it's been a lovely day. It's like if October was like this every year, I, you know, as much as people obviously say about global warming, but. We've got a lot to gain if this is global warming, i tell you that. It's <laughs> about 24 degrees out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so lovely. So lovely. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that was the voice of our, our guest, Naomi. Naomi Murphy, which um, Dr. Naomi Murphy uh, as well. So it's great to have a doctor on the, the podcast today. Uh, we haven't had um, someone no. that academically uh, advanced. So... We'll have to hold on for dear life with what we, we've got uh, educational-wise to uh, make sure we hang in. But Naomi, how are you? It's lovely to have you on as a guest. How How is your day been? I'm good, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me on. It's um, really nice to get these kind of opportunities. So really delighted to get your invite, Simon. Uh, and well, yeah, I'm good. I enjoy, I enjoy the sun. So the weekend for me involved going to a barbecue. I couldn't believe a barbecue in October. Crazy, isn't it? outside. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, we've got to make the most of it. How long may it continue? I've found that Indian summer seems to be pushing back, you know, and our winter doesn't seem to kick until January now. It does seem no. that sort of way. Mm. And then we get a couple of really cold months, don't we? And then we're back into it. So, um, yeah, long may it continue. I, I prefer wearing shorts to long trousers, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Naomi, uh, like I say, it's, it's nice because I was obviously a guest on your podcast and um, – it was great to share some thoughts around mental health and sport and the challenges that sports people face. And I know that's an area of interest for you as well. Um, but I know you've got quite a lot of interest and I think our listeners will find it fascinating to see what sort of things um, drive you and you find uh, uh, get your focus. Uh, and that's what we'd we'd love to hear about today. So um, as I said at the start, if you're quite happy to just give us a bio of the things that 
you've done throughout your career? I know it could be a potted one. You might say, oh, I can't cover all of it in this time. But um, whatever you feel is the best way to deliver it. And um, then myself and Dave will just, uh, you know, have that conversation with you. So if you don't mind, over to you. Yeah, sure. Well, I am a I am someone with quite divergent interests, and I thought if I let you know the various things that I've been involved in, I'm happy to go with the conversation in in whichever of those um, you think will appeal most for any of your any of your listeners. Um, but for, I suppose firstly, I, I suppose I'd identify myself as a forensic clinical psychologist, and I spent nearly two decades um, developing and running a trauma focused. Um, treatment program for men in a high secure jail who had previously been considered to be untreatable psychopaths um, and you know that was the government's first um, it was known as the dangerous and severe personality disorder project to start off with which is a horrible horrible name um, but actually that was you know I loved doing loved doing that job and also set that out in the book treating personality disorder which um, I co-edited with my colleague Des McVeigh um, alongside that, I've always offered a small number of um, private therapy sessions. Um, strangely, to it, well, it seemed quite strange that I was mainly work, find myself working with high achievers. And since I left my post in the prison, that's what I've really, really um, focused on in terms of my private practice. It might seem a little bit at odds with the prison work, but I think you know the reality is we're all human beings and we have similar struggles, no matter who we are and actually there are some so I did find myself working with um, some uh, retired but former elite athletes and actually there were some similarities there in terms of people in prison are often quite marginalised and actually people who are elite performers uh, in terms of sports are often also quite isolated it's hard for them to know where to turn and where to get sound mental health advice and you know the the athletes and also the other high achievers that I've worked with have been sort of people in business um often in finance or um entrepreneurs and quite often they've not come to therapy necessarily through choice somebody's given them some kind of ultimatum mm. and often that's been because I've tended to attract clients who've struggled with behaviours that have been quite destructive or self-destructive so perhaps infidelity addictions or the sort of problems managing their mood and emotion uh, anger in particular um and so there are some commonalities there and i've also found myself working with people who have um I suppose would be labelled as whistleblowers in terms of having stood up for the truth within an organisation, found themselves punished as a consequence of speaking up, speaking truth. They haven't done anything wrong, but they've been exposing the wrongdoing of an organisation. And then they've been treated in such a way that actually that's left them quite scarred by their by their experience. And I, for those kind of like the private practice in terms of therapy, I founded an organisation called Octopus Psychology. That's my mm -hmm. private practice. And um, the other thing that I do as part of that is I'm also the UK stockist of something called Roshi Wave Glasses, which uh, so I'm, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to technology that can enhance your nervous system functioning. And um, so I'm also trained in bioneurofeedback and um, something called the Safe and Sound Protocol. But the Roshi Wave glasses basically use, gla use flashing lights through these glasses and they allow you to like really get in a flow state. Um, so 
for they've been you know there's been research with them that's found that in america professional soccer players and um baseball players have found that it helps them cope with competitive stress and perform better on the day but also it can improve your proprioception you know that sense of i mean no need to explain to you guys what that is in terms of um, your ability to have a sense for where your body is in relation to a ball for instance um but also they help people sleep they help people cope with stress um they can't because they calm the nervous system down they're really good for people with adhd and each of those so the the biofeedback the rush away glasses and the safe and sound have all been used in other countries quite extensively with high performing athletes um so used a lot by olympic athletes um i'm not sure that those technologies have really broken through in the uk in quite mm. the same way which is a bit of a shame because they're they come totally free of any side effects or risk um so actually you're not going to find yourself um you know breach of some kind of um some any of the regulations around supplements um so, and they're 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 actually really nice pleasant technologies to use um so it's a shame and then thank thank you you also mentioned my podcast so that's called mm -hmm. locked up living and that arose out of a wish to having worked in a very harsh prison environment for a very long time and seeing that actually for some people that really takes a toll on who they are and they become quite negative and quite cynical and so myself and my co-host who's also worked in prisons for a long time david jones um what we what we're trying to do with our podcast is explore barriers to well-being that occur in institutions um and also ways to overcome them an institution we're talking about that in the broadest sense of the word so we have had lots of people on from a criminal justice perspective but we've also had guests from elite sport like Jan Rosenthal, for instance, a former um, German footballer, and also boarding schools and the NHS. So covered quite. We take institution at its broadest sense of the word, if you like. So, so yeah, that's um, they're probably my main interests. So happy to <laughs> to explore any of those that you think would be helpful or useful. That's a lot going on there, isn't there? So <laughs> fascinating, fascinating yeah. stuff because. All of it has um, caught my attention, yeah. Um, especially, you know, the, the whistleblower, because we had uh, Nick Inge on the other day who set up a, mm. uh, something called yeah. the I Trust app. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not just about whistleblowing, but helping people have a voice and feel heard. Uh, and it links to, you know, the stuff that you've talked about, financiers, entrepreneurs, and, you know, what will their traits be negatively impacting on people being able to voice their opinions and and speak out so i, I think let, let's just start at the top if you're happy to um what took you into forensic clinical psychology you know where did that you know first come to mind where you think that's something i'm really interested in especially that area you know um of helping people with trauma in those and the psychopath element of it i, I was trying to jot it down as you were saying so could you give us more insights into that because that yeah. sounds absolutely fascinating yeah i mean i didn't grow up thinking i want to be a psychologist i didn't think i knew what a psychologist was um yeah and, I, and actually when i applied to university i applied to do history everywhere apart from one place and I'd, and i thought i come from a pretty working class background 
And I thought, I don't want to be a history teacher. What on earth else could I do with history? So I'm not mm. going to do that. And my dad had done a psychology GCSE at night school, I think, and that just sounded <laughs> intriguing. And so yeah. I just plumped for it. But actually, when I started studying it, I thought, oh, yeah, this is this really appeals to my interest in human nature and trying to figure out why people do what they do. And I, I, I think I'm an optimist, generally, as a person. I do like to see the best in people. And I tend to think that... Most people are trying to do their best, even if they really screw up and do bad things at other times. I, I, you know, I think we are all at some level trying to be the best person that we mm. we can be. And after I got my psychology degree, I knew then that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. But within psychology, there's this awful bottleneck of getting onto a training course. And in my, le- I lived in Doncaster at the time, and there was an advert in the local paper for a. a training uh, for somebody to come and be a forensic psychologist and I was 21 22 and got, went went to work in this prison and I really felt like I was just being let loose on people to be honest with you because I was you know working in one prison but myself and a colleague who was of a similar age also with no experience told to go and set up a psychology department in the Young Offenders Institute next door and it was blindingly obvious talking to people that you know if you just pay attention to people and are curious about them they've all got these horrendous Mm. stories about their childhood experiences and that can't be a coincidence i know lots of people have really horrible experiences and don't break the law don't abuse people and don't end up in prison but you can't get away from the fact that the vast majority of people in prison are people who've had a lot of bad things happen happen Mm. to them um and I suppose, you know, there's a part, I'm the, I'm the oldest child, so there's that sense of kind of like looking at being expected to help your parents look after your younger siblings. And I would say I'm quite a caring person. Um, and, you know, I'm drawn to positive things that are positive energies within the, within the world. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to play a role and play a contribution but I could see that being a prison psychologist wasn't wasn't that and I needed to train as a clinical psychologist did that and found that still the areas that I was most interested in were the areas of like the more challenging areas of psychology in terms of harder to build a relationship with people harder to behaviors that were very repelling and really Kind of like pushed you away and I've, I've, I found it much more intriguing to try and make sense of what was going on in those situations than when somebody was quite willingly and easily coming to therapy and able to discuss things I mean obviously I like a challenge because I mm. wouldn't have stuck with that for so many years but um but yeah certainly I think I fell into a job that very much suits my personality um really you, you raised obviously about liking a challenge because one thing that you know when I was when you were saying that that jumps out to me is you know most average people just want a quiet life they want to get into work you know um avoid challenges things like that like how do you cope with all those challenges and you know and how do you how do you still still keep going back to it every day? I, I, mm. Most people would not have any understanding of that. It would be great if you could share how you deal with that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think I am somebody who likes to be very mentally active and mm. I'm not somebody who likes to just sit sit down and just lounge around. I, I never have duvet days, for instance. Um, but this 
bed rotting trend, for instance, is never would, would never have appealed to me, even as a younger person. So I do I do like to find my you know my, to get involved in thinking about things. In terms of prisons, are horrible environments to work in. Absolutely horrible. And you'd arrive at the prison, and there was at one point they installed this tannoy that was basically reminding you of not having, you know, you haven't got any mobile phone in your bag, or but it was basically like you were being bollocked on the way into work. You've been shouted yeah. at. Then you get frisked, and every, you have to take everything off and put it through the metal detector. So all of that is really, really horrible. You work in an environment where there's a lot of no one says please or thank you. People don't offer mm. you a cup of tea. It's a harsh. There's a there's a aggressive aggression in the in the air. And some of that I think is about the end. You know, you've got lots of people who are very frightened actually, but not able to say they're frightened. Mm. So they they defend themselves by being very macho. Um, but actually, the patient work was amazing, and you're building relationships with people who haven't been able to trust people, and helping them start to take steps to be a much better person and allowing them to um, to reconnect with their softer side the part that's felt hurt felt vulnerable so instead of being aggressive and hostile they're managing to kind of like reveal bits of their vulnerability and that's the patient work that that kept me working in a prison for so long and everyone I know who's who's worked in prisons for a long time it would always be that would be what they'd said is that it's the relationship with the clients and feeling that you're contributing something that's meaningful and worthwhile but you take a lot of shit to do that yourself in terms of what you have to put up with within the environment so i hope you've not got a swearing no 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 not committed policy yeah. on your podcast no no it's it's, it's completely natural <laughs> and, and that's what we encourage people to be because um what i found when you were saying that is i've heard the word psychopath but do i understand what it actually means yeah that's a so good question what 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 is how do you classify someone as a psychopath is it um you know yeah tell us because i'd be guessing if i was trying to to work it out myself well, no, it's a brilliant question, and also there's a lot of a lot of um, <clears throat> nonsense spoken about it. And we, I mean, there is a there is a kind of like a rating scale which is used to assess whether people are um, psychopaths or not. But it only apply that only applies to um, psychopaths who've ended up in prison. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, lots of people would argue that there are members of the cabinet that might classified as a psychopath but because so and in fact increasingly we do see criminal behavior don't we in terms of fraud perhaps but mm. but when we when we're talking about it in a clinical con, a context t- the, and there is this notion that people are born with faulty brains that make them use violence in an instrumental way and they're very cold and calculating in terms of what, how, how they exploit other people so it includes mm. things like being glib and superficially charming being quite parasitic in the in the behavior so looking for people to exploit especially financially not being not having any deep or meaningful relationships uh, being quite callous in how they treat other people and I, I suppose the big thing that people tend to differentiate between people who are psychopathic and other people who might end up in prison is this idea that they use violence in an instrumental way just to get their needs met but I'd say my experience of people who are psychopaths is that they are people that it's it's kind of like a state of dissociation. So they're people who are very, very damaged and the people that have score would score most highly in terms of psychopathy have typically had the most brutal experiences that you could imagine mm-hmm. and typically being brutalised by very many. You know, so I've worked in a medium secure hospital unit and 
the what was interesting was that the people there there was often at least one decent adult or their mum might have been a bit a bit poor at protecting them but mm. she wasn't herself cruel and and, and and hateful whereas the people that i worked with in prison typically like both parents and then any subsequent step parents that were introduced to them really the child felt that they were hated and in fact lots of them had recollections of their parents telling them that they wished they would never have them wish they were dead and that's a level of hatred that you have to cope with and i think what people do in those kind of circumstances they disconnect and dissociate from it but also they you know there is this idea that in in forensic settings that you can only direct to others an experience that you've had yourself so actually if you're cruel it's often because you've experienced that kind of level of cruelty yourself and i think the problem with psychopathic anger is that most of us even if we would never do it or we well hopefully us three would never do it but but most <laughs> of us can understand that if your partner hacks you off that you might feel really really angry and you might you might feel like hitting them but you wouldn't hit them but mm. so you can therefore understand how easy it is for people to commit acts of domestic violence because we've all felt a bit frustrated at times but people who are psychopathic they're hurt and then they sit on it and stew on it and then it comes out in some cold way later and so people don't necessarily recognize there's a link between a hurt or a slight and they're often harbouring, you know, lots of resentment at society because they feel that society didn't protect them or care about them when they were boys being beaten by their dads or sexually abused mm. um, or when they went into care. So they feel like no one's ever cared about them. No one's had a stake in them. And it's kind of, you know, that their attitude towards society is kind of like, well, fuck you. You didn't care about me. So why should I care? Why should mm. I obey your rules? Why should I care about what you're 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 expecting of me because you you haven't held up your side of the deal. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, that yeah. helped a lot. Yeah, I I I like speaking honestly here. Like you, the word psychopath is banded around mm. so much, and I don't think most people really understand what it means. So it's great to get your insight into that. Like mm. it, the only times you obviously you only ever hear about it like on the news uh program or uh, in a newspaper or anything and it's literally to do with obviously like a serious criminal that's you know like a murderer or something like that so it, it, it's got a lot of baggage attached to that term um so it's good to kind of get a clear kind of overview of what it is because as i say i don't think most of our listeners would would have that that specific understanding of what it is so it's, that's a really good thing to, to that you've given us there mm. i think you're right they don't and i suppose the other point to make as well is when we do see it on the tv when we see people on the tv and they're described as psychopaths they're usually serial killers you know yes, so we, what we all want is american, those american yeah. programs where they talk about psychopaths and it's someone who's committed umpteen murders and uh, you know the the unit that i worked in with the the men were all considered to be the most dangerous men in the UK prison system and they'd lived in segregation often for many years before coming to us. And there were there were a few that had killed on multiple occasions, but the vast you know, not all of them had. And mm. and yet they still would have met those same conditions of being seen as being a psychopath. So we tend to see the, the real extreme of them. Mm. Or we don't think about what that might look like if somebody's cold and callous and treats people as if they're disposable individuals when they're not committing criminal acts 
Because I was delivering a mental health course today and uh, a mental health first aid England one. And we were discussing line managers and any experiences people had had with a line manager that was a bully or, you know, and you think, well, could that be that someone can harbour these type of feelings? But they're cruel because a, a couple of the ladies on the course were saying that their line manager was cruel to them in relation to managing managing them, the situation. And they had a reputation within the department that they were working in for this cruelty. And, you know, how do we report it to HR? And uh, I suppose that could link into the whistleblowing type work that you, you've done around. What is it that, because I've seen some of the work that you've posted on LinkedIn with uh, Letby and how the NHS hadn't really done much about it, even though whistleblowers were so. Is there a, a crossover there? Is there uh, a link with these, you know, some people's psychopathic behaviours that actually it can present its, itself in a way not extreme, someone murdering, or does it have to have, you know, that murderous element to it as well or not? I don't know. Well, I think to be to be clinically a psychopath, you would need to have behaved in a way that was was aggressive and and very destructive right. but i yeah. think a lot of those other so when people talk about a white collar psychopath then they're talking mm. about people who haven't committed those you know and i was you know half joking <clears throat> about tory mps at the start but actually <laughs> the, 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 you see the same sort of um mm. traits among ceos of nhs trusts where it's a bit like the you know in the lucy letby case mm. that guy you know, there's a video of him on YouTube boasting about, oh, you know, we'll make sure that every all the standards are, are held up within this organisation, that it's safe to speak out. And then, yeah, obviously, clearly it wasn't safe to speak yeah. out. And then he goes and gets a job in another trust down south in the southwest. So clearly not really taking responsibility. Mm. And, you know, it's very common practice in the NHS for a, a chief exec from one trust, for the trust neighbouring to my my previous employer Norfolk the trust failed and then he gets got a job in Cambridge and Peterborough and it's like well actually if you're not performing why are you so easily able yeah. to go and get a job somewhere else and they're not regulated so you can't you've got no one to complain to if they're not performing um but I think it's quite worrying it's quite troubling when you've got managers being referred to as cruel because I think cruel is mm. quite an unusual word to apply yeah. within a normal um, organization environment and actually cruel I think touches on something that's a little bit different you know we all we might refer to feeling a bit bullied by a manager or feel that a manager is a bit a bit lacking in compassion but actually cruel implies a degree of kind of like almost enjoyment out, mm, of, yeah. out of out of making things hard for somebody doesn't it yeah and their, their reputation was this person so when people had left you know the woman was saying, well, the previous person had left um, because of the way that she was treated by this person. It had become unbearable. And it was a pattern that almost we're accepting this person's behaviour for some reason rather than challenging it and saying, look, this is unacceptable for us. Why is this person actually making people leave or putting people in a situation where they feel that they've got to, to leave? And I, I think about you know, we're joking here about Tory politicians, but some of them, if they went to a boarding school, which was quite challenging and they might have had some, you know, negative behaviours to them, maybe sexually or other types of abuse, does that make them disassociate in some way, that, you know, and they become uh, a person who can't connect with that human nature, that humanist 
uh, connection with others and that's where they can be a little bit callous and a little bit cold and go it doesn't really matter i don't know is there a correlation with if they've Ab experienced that bit of abuse Abs absolutely i'm mean, simon you're drawing brilliantly there on, on like understanding people's histories and you know that we have done several podcasts with people from boarding school backgrounds some of whom came from quite upper class backgrounds and we interviewed richard beard who went to uh went to boarding schools along with cabinet members and you know many of them went to boarding school at like the age of seven or eight which can you imagine sending mm. your own child mm. away at that age I mean I've got a 12 year old and he didn't even want to go on a residential trip for a week <laughs> um you know because because of that need to be around your family but actually if you're sent mm. off to boarding school then you that, that dislocates you from yeah. from your family um and then also so how do you cope with that and i think what was really interesting when we spoke to richard beard was him talking about how um these schools actually deliberately are harsh bullying places because their their intention was to toughen up the kids that went to them so that's mm. the cultural background that they come from that they were to toughen you up so that you could then go out into the world and lead armies and what what mm. have you but that that doesn't appear to have changed Really, I don't, you know, I, don't, I find it fascinating actually that pe wealthy people will send their kids to boarding school because, yeah. because actually, really, that's no different to care. Why would you expect paid mm. carers to do a better job of a family? And I know your interests in um, sports, Simon, and you have to think sometimes about sometimes children's relationships with their families are being dislocated. And what does that mean when they're then in a in a club where, you know, there are potential role models around them, but role models aren't necessarily always standing up as father figures, but more like trying to be a friend or a big brother mm. when actually what you've got a young kid, they need a dad um, and a very present dad. Yeah. David, I don't know, uh, and Naomi, I don't know if you've seen the David Beckham Netflix documentary um, and I watched it this weekend and his father really, really pushed him um no mistakes go harder go longer don't give up and he was quite isolated through his own you know words he didn't have friends he just focused on football 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 his dad recorded all of his matches so 1400 tapes of matches um really wanted to be to be a man united player and we were talking about it today saying if people view this and think i can make a man united player by following that same path you think there's, there's so much more to it. And then when you see David Beckham, he went through quite a lot of mental health challenges through his career um, because of the way he was, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know much of his background, but Simeone, when he got red carded, joined the World Cup, when he was uh, allegedly had an affair with a lady while he was in Madrid and how that affected the relationship because of the public. Uh, and then obviously transitioning away from the career into new career. And he's very meticulous in cleaning and he attributes some of this sort of, you know, and when I talk about mental health, I see, well, actually, is there a correlation from his childhood and how his father was and then to where he became an elite performer? And, you know, when you've talked about financiers, entrepreneurs, what's that drive? Where does it come from? Is it driven from an innate? Because we were talking about nature nurture in a little bit of a way. Because I, I honestly believe the more I've been in and around football, I think the elite performers have an innate talent. Um, it's then brought out of them with the right support mechanisms. I think it's very difficult to take someone with average ability and turn them into a professional athlete. So we were trying to think, well, if this dad 
is now the model because you'll get lots of dads watch this now and go, I'm going to get my son straight over the park and start pushing, 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 pushing. And you think, oh, I wish they'd have caveated it in a way to say, look, this may have worked for Beckham. We don't know. Would he have made it anyway without his yeah. father's influence or not? And I think there could be a real can of worms there because I see it on the side of a pitch all the time. People really vicariously trying to live through their child and push them. And I don't know if those financiers, those entrepreneurs, those people that you treat in your private practice, have they had someone driving them? Are they someone who's just born with that drive? You know, is there uh, any sort of crossover there at all? I found so much of what you said really resonates and, you know, really fascinating, Simon. So I think quite often across all those areas, there have been people who have perhaps had some kind of like natural talent, whether that be for numbers and studying or for sport. But actually, they also had the message that they weren't good enough. And there's that constant striving for perfection in the hope that it it's really I suppose it's you kind of like looking for conditional love you kind of assume that actually if you could just get it perfect somehow at that point you'll become acceptable and lovable and I think the other thing that sport in particular does is it encourages people to switch off and disconnect from their emotions so you're encouraged to push through keep going no matter what um and you know we associate actually we associate sport with good mental health and i was just reading something on on social media this morning about how actually you only have to do 15 minutes and nine seconds of sport and that has a positive impact on your mental health but when you're spending hours and hours and hours mm. then actually what you end up with a kind of you know focus on your body but disconnecting from how your body and not you know we feel we experience our emotions in a visceral way inside us but athletes are encouraged to push through and ignore and in some ways i think the sport gets used to kind of obliterate emotions you know mm. so actually rather than spending time sitting and dwelling on something sad that's happened or some disappointment that we've had any of the kind of like negative emotions then we you know the, then people end up um not being able to identify what they're feeling because it's that thing of keeping yourself busy in order to not feel and mm. i don't think it's any surprise that david beckham's got kind of like a touch of OCD about him because that is a, a, a you know a mental disorder which is very much linked to activity and that need to keep keep busy um, but ultimately you're talking about perfectionism as a defense against mm. shame and not feeling good enough which is really sad when you think about how amazing what an amazing player he was I mean I've only actually watched the first episode so far and I, f I found it you know really nice to watch because he just comes across as a really wholesome lovely individual and he's lucky because actually his parents did love him so i, I, I take your point about the pressurizing mm. but mm. if you add into the pressure potentially also parents that might be a bit a bit a bit more callous or a bit harsh a bit more abusive um because not every not every athlete comes from a, a loving family or family that are able to be loving and kind you know if you come from a family with a bit of brutality into the mixture as well and that's really quite a toxic combination and I don't think it's surprising that so many athletes end up with problems with addiction later because addiction is ultimately is about how you regulate your emotions and if you can't regulate your emotions because you're just keeping busy and just making sure you're out on the pitch or in the nets or whatever you're doing to to keep yourself going then actually I think the danger is we've got people whose ability to manage their emotions is quite stunted because that period of you know 10 
through to 30, 35, um, they've not been really in charge of what's going on for them emotionally. They've just deferred, parked it later, you know, on the basis I'll deal with that later. But then when it does come, you it comes with a massive crash because they're, you know, crashing out of their career at that point. Mm. I must admit, I've not watched any episodes of it yet, but I, I was planning to. The one, I suppose, question, this is for you, Simon, actually, you mentioned, obviously, the relationship he has with his dad, but mm. I, I must admit, I don't really ever remember seeing his dad. I've seen his mum, like, um, uh, at things and stuff. Does he still have a relationship with his dad, or is it? Yeah, he still he, he does still love his dad, and he attributes, you know, some of the success to his dad. He does also outline a fear. You know, why did you never push back at your father? And it was, well, if, I, if I'd have hit him, he'd have hit me back a lot harder. So there was mm. an element of fear there as well. And I think the dad was doing it from a, a, a place of concern and support, but he was Man United obsessed. His middle name oh. is like Robert Joe's after Bobby Charlton, you know, and he, he he was very much, I want my son to play for Man United. And it was a constant narrative through Beckham's um, childhood. You're going to wear this top. You're going to, you know, always have the Man United kit. We're going to be out in the back garden if you don't control it. So link to Naomi's point there. If you don't nail it, you're not mm. getting anything from me. Yeah. Your, your, your praise or, you know, my, I don't know, my tenderness, maybe my love is, is that conditional. So I wrote that down. You do well, you get praised, but even then you can do better. Yes. And, and it was that constant. You need to always be, be the best. If you're not the best, don't. And that was a constant narrative through him. So when I see those cleaning traits that he had, and it was meticulous cleaning, um, you know, he would say I'd get down there at half six and I'd make sure every because I can't come down and there'd be mess. So there's an element of that perfectionism within, which still seems to drive him now with the Inter Miami business. Because he said, I couldn't switch off and just do nothing. I've had to then go straight into this next part of my life, which is obviously running that successful franchise. So, uh, yeah, I'd encourage you to, to watch it, David. Get your perspective on it for, you know, next time we, we sit down and mm. chat. But Naomi, I think you'll enjoy it when you go through, obviously, with your lens of the world to see how you pick it up. Because um, Gary Neville does mention um, elite performers being addicted, you know, being addicted to that adulation, to that that pressure, to that wantingness to succeed. And you think, well, actually, yeah, when they do transition out, if they don't manage that properly, we know that the statistics around bankruptcy, failed malia, failed failed marriages, all of a sudden are quite huge within those those people, uh, and then addiction, uh, I suppose, follows suit for some of them. Yeah, Is that, absolutely. I suppose that kind of moves us to my next question, which is around. You mentioned obviously now you're working in your private practice with. Um, former sports people and, and and entrepreneurs and business people. The sports people that you work with, obviously I'm, I'm not looking for names or anything like that, but are they coming to you? You mentioned obviously before about, say, successful people that are kind of being pushed towards you as a final straw or kind of they need to get help. Is that the same with the sports people or are they more? No, that's, that's very much been their thing the narrative there as well you know partners saying that they need to come yeah. come for therapy um in order to save the yeah. marriage 
um, and that being the motivating factor for them at that point. And that I'd say that's you know that's a very common motivation. A lot of the clients that I work with are men, um, and actually men do see cat therapy much less than than women and find it a lot harder to be. I think to expose their vulnerability because I think society puts so much pressure on boys and men to you know hide what's going on be okay and um, protect other people and so it's, it's really hard for them to to voice that vulnerability it's only when somebody says actually the way you're managing is so destructive that yeah I can't I can't stay with you unless you do do something about it it's uh, interesting and I suppose those traits they have Going back to what Simon was saying with the example of, of, of obviously David Beckham, do you do you see those traits are uh, uh, things those athletes pick up through their sporting life, or could it be instilled in them before they you know hit the peaks of their performing um, career, if we call it that? Yeah, I think a lot, I think a lot of it stems, you know, just stem back to early earlier life and how you and that, some of that might be the process and you know obviously for some for some kids that represents a way out of a way to better not just their yeah. life but their whole family's mm. life so that they, there's a lot of pressure that they might be living under you know to carry um to carry the family um that's you know a, i think there's a kind of an inculcation into you know, gradually um, becoming more dependent on sports um, mm. or, you know, in the other, other professions, you see that people focus everything on job success, you know, that they think if they if they get the next promotion, they'll somehow be happy at that point. So they're always going for the better, you know, mm. the next thing. But happiness doesn't arrive, contentment doesn't arrive because yeah. there's, there's always that sense you've got to be striving, striving for the next. And actually, I think children do best when they feel happy loved and safe and that's that should be our main priority and actually that's the best way to get good play out of anybody i would say you know, good performance whether it be academic performance or sporting performance if children feel safe and supported and loved then they'll want to shine um and they'll want to but they'll also be well-rounded people when they grow up and i think the danger is that some people excel at great expense to the rest of that you know to their personal lives I suppose, yeah, go on, Dave. Sorry, one last point I was going to ask or question. Was going Obviously, like you say, people keep striving, but I suppose sport is probably the only real area I can see where someone can achieve everything, so to speak. So, like, if you're, I suppose, if you're a boxer, you win every title. If you're a footballer, you win the World Cup, or, or do you know what I mean? Is this. Do you see that? I don't know. Is is that another issue where you kind of run out of things to to achieve? If if that makes sense. Well, I think I think that I mean a couple of things you said there are really interesting because I think I think there is that potential that you run out of. You know, once you've reached the top, how do you how do you top mm. that? You've got nothing left to strive for or have any sense of of purpose for. But I think also quite often uh, you know i think when you look at kind of like the biographies of people like paul merson and tony adams you know playing very mm. successful football and then going and losing a load on the horses and yeah. kind of like almost having that self-defeating need to kind of like go and do something actually they were going to do really badly and undermine themselves just to we you know because sometimes we we're not addicted but it's like we have a self 
self-defeating beliefs about ourselves you know that if we don't feel we're good enough so mm. then we'll find something else to fail spectacularly at even if we are managing to be successful in in the one area we've chosen um but i think you know it's how do you retire from mm. you know at what point do you decide you're going to retire unless you're very there's a few athletes who retire when they're at their peak and mm. actually then they can go out knowing they were at the best but the reality is unless you do that and most of them don't because they continue to to want to earn high you know large amounts of money as you, as anyone would but then that means you have to cope with the fact that your body's waning your performance is waning and so mm. then you're left coping with this massive disappointment but if you don't have the skills to cope with disappointment because you've parked your emotions anyway then that becomes very very difficult to manage that at the end point of your your athletic career and you also unless all of your friends are from within sport you're also retiring way early than a lot of your friends so mm. you know when people retire at sort of 50 or 60 we're you know 70 we've got used to the idea of you have retirement at that stage your body's slowing down a bit anyway so you perhaps want a, a, a slower pace of life but if you're retiring in your 30s you still feel like you're in your prime even though 20 somethings are going to outrun you or outplay you um but you but you don't feel like you're on the scrap heap and yet yeah. you're being treated like you're on the scrap heap mm. um, i mean it, it's just throwing lots of things in my mind when i'm sitting here thinking about it because when i do assessments of professional football scholars they're trying to support them now to go your sport can't be your identity uh, and i'm just wondering if financiers entrepreneurs do they have this thing where they're trapped in this this is who I am and what sits outside of it. So when they transition out retirement, because I was speaking with a life coach previously whose um, husband is getting close to retirement. He's a financier and he's thinking, I've reached the top of my game. I'm going to you know, retire at 55 because where do I go next? Yeah. And his identity is wrapped up in it. And I didn't know this until she told me that a lot of them die young um, once they have retired because they just haven't had that then that sense of pushing 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 to achieve the things so is there an identity element to this where they're wrapped up um this is who i am and this defines me as a person so then when they lose that they get lost a little bit well that's a good question and um, i will answer the one about identity but just before you come to that what somebody told me in finance that the reason people retire early is because the companies don't want them there later yeah. because they know they're a high risk for a heart attack because they've lived right. such a stressful life they work them to the bone mm -hmm. and so and they the people in that sector often are complicit with that they'll do it because they think well actually i'm going to make a packet by the time i'm 50 and then yeah. i'll retire shortly after there so i'll, I'll suck it up for mm. 20 years 30 years um and then and then I'll, I'll go and i'll be loaded and i'll be happy and that's when i'll live my life at that point um yeah. but yeah somebody did tell me the companies themselves they they really work with that model and framework of trying to get people out because the that would be a problem for them then if they've got people who are long on long-term sick because they've got a heart problem um and so they don't actually want them to be there as employees anymore but mm. i think you're right i think for, i mean for for many of us you know when we think about who we are a lot of us will say our, our you know our job our profession as being you know that's part of our identity very much so and i i don't see a problem with having that as part of your identity as long as there are other elements to your identity too 
and as long as there's enough flexibility in you to be able to think well actually um that's not who I am anymore because I'm going to do something a little bit different and it sounds I, I, I don't know much about your background David but but with Simon it sounds like your background's been very much I've done something here and then I've I've taken a, a step sideways and do some something a bit different and mm. so there's a fluidity there you've been able to be adaptive and um, make changes and that's so even if your work even if your work was was quite central to your identity there's still a, a there's still a flexibility about it and you'd be able to say well like you know this is what I'm now now doing whereas I think when people have got everything invested in success in a sport mm -hmm. or finance or or a business they've started it's very very different it's very very difficult to then take a step back from that because they're kind of left with who am I and especially if there's been a sense of workaholism there you know they've been doing it for very long hours yeah. haven't left themselves much time for socializing or developing hobbies so actually really you know work is who they are there's there's, there's not much else there because they say that's that can be seen as a self-harming behavior can't it you know that overwork yeah. that pushing yourself to the limit um being first in last out that mentality and you know elite athletes, we were discussing it today, really pushing themselves to the maximum to get every ounce out of their, their bodies and their, their minds. But it's, it's borderline and maybe even is self-harming behaviours in some instances because why are they pushing themselves so hard? Is it for that perfectionism? Is, is it to go, I am the best? And is there an element I need to be punished in a way? Uh, you know, Because I know there's a lot wrapped up in that. Um, for people who go on to be the very elite, uh, the, the ones, you know, I look at Ronaldo and the way he pushes himself constantly. It's it's admirable, but you think that desire to push him, and you look at his childhood, his, his father was an alcoholic, um, mm -hmm. and I think there is a real motivation and drive there to say, regardless of what my father was like, and he loved his father, I, I'm going to show, you know. Um, so is there elements of that, that, that self-harm, that... Um, they're, they're punishing themselves in a way, or is it they're just so focused on being the best? That's a byproduct of what they're, they're trying yeah. to achieve. I think they, I think there can be a bit of both actually. I think for some people it probably is just purely about wanting to be the best, um, but for others there could be a sense of you know punish, feeling bad about themselves for failing or not doing as well as they wanted to do, and so you know to some degree beating themselves up that way. But I think the other thing you have to consider is you know uh, being an elite athlete is not good for your body in the long term you know mm. if you look at kind of like the um the injuries that people incur and the fact that people often have physical problems in you know these are people who you know at, at, at points in their life have appeared to be very much kind of like peak human beings in terms of what they've been able to get out of their bodies but actually later on when they're kind of like you know, got problems with arthritis um, because of, you know, doing the same thing repetitively. Obviously, we see kind of like with boxing, rugby, football, increasingly kind of like links with early onset dementia because of heading. Um, mm. You know, uh, that that isn't in a human being's best interest, is it? I mean, yeah. right, if, you've, if you're if like, can do superhuman things when you're in your 20s and 30s but not if it comes at the cost of living a shortened life i'd say personally yeah and you are starting to um i'm trying to think the guy that uh he played in the Eng in england's uh rugby world cup winning side in 2003 uh steve thompson 
he can't remember a thing from um, that game. He can't remember much from the end of his playing career either. And he has said that if he had it all again, he wouldn't play rugby again. Because it's like, as I think what you were saying before, like, it, and, I, and I know this, it's a different context, but there's such a short career of that sporting career, uh, career if we call it that. There's so much more to your life than than that. I suppose there's there's not many sports where you can play them for such a prolonged amount of time. But for someone like that, he, his life has dramatically changed from that short window of where he was performing as a rugby player. And um, yeah, most people wouldn't want to make that sacrifice, I imagine, for their life um because it's just yeah it's 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 just not what <laughs> as you say you've got so much more of your life to live after a short career like that and it's just going to scar you or affect you for the rest of your life so yeah it's 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 thought provoking isn't it um, you mentioned obviously at the top about and i suppose if we move the conversation on we've we've obviously we keep coming back to sports people i think that's probably um <laughs> kind of uh mine and simon's interests really that keep coming through we, obviously we did talk about psychopath as well so i don't know what that says about me, me and simon but um you mentioned obviously about the glasses i know mm. that anyone listening to this would have been kind of said get her to talk about the glasses what are these glasses i've not heard of this so can you Oh, absolutely! Absolutely can, and you know, I'm a bit, I'm kicking myself because I, sh I'm, I'd meant to, but because of, because of rushing to get here, I meant to get some out so that I could show you. But yeah, you, you put these glasses on, and they use light stimulation, and mm. uh, what they do is the this flashing light calms the nervous system. So what it does is it helps. What it does is it helps your brain move away from patterns, brainwave patterns that are unhelpful for you and puts you into what we call a window of tolerance. So you're kind of like optimum, relaxed, but concentrate, able to focus and have attention. So it gets you in a flow state, basically. Now, depending on what time of day you use them, if you use them in an evening, they can help you go to sleep. So they can help you after you've had a really adrenaline filled day that can help you calm your nervous system down and it seems paradoxical to use lights to go to sleep but actually you know they can they can help you go to sleep and you can even fall asleep with the glasses on because they've got silicon on them um, but they can help you learn more easily they can help I, I had a I had a dental procedure recently and I wore them while I was in the dentist um, and I was shocked because I was told this de dentist point was going to last for three hours and but I wore these glasses and actually actually, the time actually went really quickly. And what they do is, I don't know if you've ever tried meditation, um, because they, it, a lot of people try but find it very difficult to meditate. Yeah. These glasses kind of induce a meditative state, um, but with zero effort on your behalf. So you, you just lie back, eyes shut or open, and the flashing light um, stimulates your hypothalamus and encourages your brain to be in this state of calm and it, you know they're really amazing in terms of um how they do that but you know you can use them every day so they're in the research that i spoke about um you know where elite athletes had used them in america they were using them for 20 minutes a day for two weeks prior to competitive matches and found that just using them 20 minutes a day um led to significantly improved performance um so really quite quite amazing if if any of our 
listeners wants to kind of find out more about them or wants to buy them, where do they need to go? Yeah, so I have a website called octopuspsychology.com and you can buy them from the shop there. Ah, and they well, are quite, they are quite costly, so you can pay for them in, in installments. Yeah. Um, and I also do rent them, but if if somebody wanted to rent them, they'd need to kind of like write to me, uh, send yeah. me an email uh, to hmm. do that. So we'll I, add, I, we'll add yeah, the link to the yeah. show. Thank notes. you. That so would be brilliant. I have a Thank feeling you. that there will be quite a bit of interest in these. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. I'm interested in it. Was it get you into flow state or out of flow state? Get you into flow state. So they're, they're really useful if you're kind of like if you're feeling a bit agitated or anxious. They they're really good for people with ADHD, for instance. Um, so anyone who's or I don't know if you're somebody who gets nervous when you're flying i use them because i get nervous going to the dentist so that's why mm -hmm. I, that's why i use them and you know i i am somebody who's really curious about technology but also i think i don't like taking medication i don't mm -hmm. like things that are invasive and so actually i'm really you know really keen to explore any kind of technologies that help us be at our best without coming at a cost to us mm. at the same time and they're side effect side effect yeah. free because I don't know if you've ever listened to the Johnny Wilkinson podcast he did. Uh, I think it was with the High Performance podcast where he was talking about as he got through the latter stage of his career, he wanted to be in that flow state of being present in the moment to perform at his best. And because he, he had that moment of clarity when he kicked that feel, you know, that drop goal in the, the final. And he said, well, how do we recapture that? And it's something there's a there's a guy out there who works with golf, but he works with lots of different people called Sam Jarman. And it's about how do we get people? So if these glasses can enhance that, you're thinking, well, actually, it sounds what you ideally what you want from performers to be in a flow state where everything around them, you know, is calm and they can make decisions in that moment. And we know that there's a lot of autonomy with elite performers. They don't apply that thought process, but it's. I, I do things in the moment, which is more often right yes. than not right. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It, it's it's that bit around, well, if you can capture that flow state, because I imagine it would also be very useful within industries where there's high stress, like, I don't know, a fighter pilot or something like that, yeah. where you've got to make those decisions in an instant, but you're there prepared for that. So th these glasses, yeah, I... I, I I, I did quickly Google why you, you were talking and I saw the optimist. So, yeah, I think definitely we'll, we'll have to try and get some more uh, information on this day to, to try them out yeah. and see, you know, what they, they look like. And here's some feedback from some people. Do you have testimonials on your website as well from people around uh, how it's supported them or? Not in relation to that's quite a new thing for me selling those. Right. So yeah. I have yeah. got testimonials, but they're about my work as an individual therapist, but not in relation mm. to that. But there's a there's a, a really great article that was published in Psychology Today, um, that, which is a online magazine. But if you Google Roshi Wave Psychology Today, and that will come up with with a link to a really nice article describing them. How yeah. did how did you come across? them like i suppose so how did how did you get involved with them that is a really great question and i think this goes back to the working in a prison so working mm. in a prison i was aware of i've got to work really hard to keep myself emotionally nourished and in a calm mm. place because it's very easy when you get you, you know i've been called all sorts of mm. things that you wouldn't want to be called at work you on the receiving end of a lot of 
hostility and flack when you're working in a prison. And so I, I got really curious about what the ways that I, what ways can I support my own emotional well-being. So I'm really into yoga and running. So do those those things very regularly because I found that that helps uh, my nervous system. Um, but I also then got into bio neurofeedback, which is it does a similar thing to the rush to the so i use a system called neurooptimal which basically the computer does it for you and you listen to music for 33 minutes and again that's used a lot by olympic athletes americans are way ahead of the game in terms mm. of they use all of these technologies and canada and australia and neurooptimal you listen to music and you hear scratches they're a bit like the but the sound you'd get on vinyl when it skips a beat and that's kind of like draws your mind your mind's attention back and so again at the end of this 33 minutes you've got this sense of being in a flow state but that involves attaching sensors to the top of your head so it, it's paced it's a bit messy you're tied to the uh, to a, a tablet and it's cumbersome whereas the Roshi wave glasses you've just got a little a little gadget that's the size of a cigarette pack of cigarettes that you can just put mm. in your pocket um so it's much more convenient but it was and you know so i explored all sorts of other technologies apollo neuro which uses um you wear it around your wrist or your ankle and that uses vibrations to to trigger a uh, vagus nerve reaction mm. um and also the safe and sound uh which is we've developed for which is again is another auditory program and that was developed to help children who had ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder might be in a calmer state and have be less less hypervigilant but actually they found that that's also really helpful for um for people with a history of trauma and also I was recently at a presentation where somebody was talking about using that with with athletes um, mm. I think they're just doing some research on that at the moment um because anything that requires you know for all of us we're at our best when we feel calm and we feel relaxed and we're able to be playful but also it gets the best out of us because we, we mm. feel safe um and that's what ultimately what all of these devices do really they increase our sense of safety without taking away that need for us you know they don't remove that sense of adrenaline but they keep it within a within a range that we're still able to function in rather than becoming just so full of adrenaline that we can't think and we've got limited control over our body wow and it's, it's great to hear that these things exist because obviously we're not you know privy to this or we don't understand it so being able to share this and other people to explore it would be fascinating because i'm sure there'll be lots of people who would want to try these these different technologies themselves to say, will it work for me? Will it also give me the sort of things that I'm looking for? Um, especially, I mean, do the the people that you treat in your clinical work, do they utilize them? And they say, actually, that, that's really yeah. helped me as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some people, so, like, different individuals vary according to how much benefit they've got from them. But generally, mm. you know, that's been because they've, some people have wanted to try them. Some people have just been curious about, oh, do I need, you know, just want to try it because it's a possibility to try it rather than because they've felt there's a need for it. But mm. the people who have felt they're really struggling to cope with things like anxiety speak about kind of like having quite life-changing benefits as a consequence of using them and find that they, for instance, they don't lose their temper as easily. They don't get as irritated with family members. They're not as anxious and not having panic attacks um you know it actually can really help people 
uh, function. Um, and yeah, and if people do want to come and try them, you know, I do have an office um, in, in Aundal and people are welcome to make an appointment and come and test out some of these things. Yeah, and I'm sure that people would definitely be interested because uh, it sounds like there's a variety of uses for it and they can come at it from what's going to work best for them. So with that variety of things that you've discussed there, we always say to people, is there anything that you're most proud of? You know, so we, we, we say you can't say you're the birth of your children or nothing like that. Okay. It has to be career focused. Yeah. But um, is there a moment where you've gone, you know what, when that occurred, I, I was so, 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 so proud. So is there anything that you can pinpoint or um, that sticks out for you? Yeah, I'd say I'd say a couple of things. So um, one is, I guess, yeah, well, I guess kind of like creating a treat. You know, I was invited in 2003 to develop a treatment programme for people who were considered to be untreatable. Mm. And I developed a treatment programme for the psychopathic population that works, you know, that that people who had been kicked off every other treatment programme in prison or who were considered, you know, not to be able to benefit from treatment were able to come and do treatment and actually be calmer more at peace and to make real changes in their life and actually that's I feel very privileged to have had that experience and to have been on people's journeys with them and you know you end up forging very deep um, therapeutic relationships with people and that's I think a really precious thing um mm. so that and i suppose producing a book writing <laughs> writing that up um so yes thank you so what's the book called have you already mentioned that earlier or yeah it's called treating personality disorder and it's really it's about operationalizing how you set up services for people who've got complex mental health needs when perhaps you're working to get you know they're not trusting people because they're you know their experiences everybody hurts you and uh, so actually how do you develop therapeutic relationships with people who aren't really inclined to trust anybody because they've been so badly damaged by their own experiences within their families and that's something that's still being utilized in the prison service and beyond now um even though you, you've left well i've left there and, and my guess is there's probably been changes i think they've cut we had a five-year-long treatment program which i think i believe has been cut down to three years so i'm not quite sure what they're doing there anymore but it ran successfully for 17 years um oh, wow so that's a long a long time in prison oh. prison program mm. times mm. yeah i mean i used to live in portsmouth and they used to have kingston prison and we used to go in there and play football. All those those guys in there were in there for domestic murder. You know, they'd, um, you know, hurt their wives or partners. Um, so you could see that was this rolled out across the, um, what do they call it? The prison, all prisons. So the prison. The prison estate. The prison estate. Yeah, that's it. I was thinking landscape, but prison estate. Yeah. Or was it just specific to your prison? We, this was a, I mean, it, it actually took men from all over the country. So, right. there, so we were the first service, and then there was a, we had a sister service in the north that that provided treatment for men in the north of England. Mm. Um, but I'd say what arose from that was a change of mindset in terms of prison and a recognition that actually treatment needed to be trauma focused. So they then sprang up a whole load of of services, which were pathway services for our men to to be able to progress to the next to you know to a, a less secure prison uh, whereas previously you know they're in segregation for many many months or even years they were they weren't going anywhere um, they were mainly well over 
tariff and you know been in prison for decades and doing treatment enabled them to actually be able to move on to to the next place so the thinking about people in prison and men in prison and understanding they've got a history of trauma i'd say that spread as a consequence of, of the treatment we were doing hmm. i suppose we've kind of come back to your experiences in the prison service and things like that now this might sound a ridiculous question but based on obviously now you've got your private practice and the other activities you do do you miss that environment of the prison that you were working in i know that might sound crazy but no it doesn't know... it, it doesn't sound a, it doesn't sound a crazy question but um i don't miss it because i I'm, i never i think i always felt like i enjoyed the work in the unit that i worked on because i felt we were able to offer a a community where people you know the men that you that came there used to you know they'd arrive saying that they were all loners they hated other people didn't mm. want anything to do with each other and then by year three of treatment they were saying this is the first time in my life i've ever felt loved or cared for uh, yeah. which is really special um and it felt like we were able to create a very warm community where people treated one another with respect and decency and compassion and i think over time it really felt like the uh, the prison system was encroaching on that and made it harder and harder to do it. and i don't i personally don't think that the prison system is set up to really do any achieve anything meaningful um so i wouldn't want to go back to working in a prison and i I think, you know, my, I left because of a way that a colleague was treated um, in really quite an abusive way by the mm. system for standing up about the abuse of prisoners and challenging that. And that leaves a very sour taste, in, hence the whistleblowing work, yeah. I think, probably. Mm. But it, that leaves quite a sour taste in the mouth. So, no, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to go back. I don't regret the time that I worked there and I loved the, the work and feel I learned a lot from it myself and feel I played a you know i did something that was purposeful and meaningful you know that's what we all want out of our work i think is, is to feel yeah. like we're doing something that contributes um but i feel very much that that phase of my life is is over with and i'm on something new and the private practice was always something i did in a small way on the side mm. but now it's nice to be able to think about well actually how else you know what can i what can evolve from that that phase of my life um mm if you see what i mean no that makes a lot of sense. i suppose that brings us nicely we have touched upon the private practice work that you do so does that take up majority of your time now um that and about my podcast take you guys yourself will know how much time yeah. podcasting takes and you don't it's you know it started as a hobby and mm. it, it it's time consuming but i love doing it because i get to have such amazing conversations with really nice people that's how i met simon mm. um you know just have really lovely conversations with really nice decent people particularly i like to you know i invite people on who i like and um i don't have to have conversations with anyone that i don't don't want to have um and and so i do do that quite a bit but i'm also like i say i agreed just this year to to sell these roshi wave glasses and so i really want to find a way to make that work because i think they you know i, I know myself i think they're amazing and i i think it's a shame to have this technology that people aren't aware of and could mm. be using um to enhance you know make a difference to their own lives because as I was listening there, it took me back to a guest that we had previously, uh, Julian Wadsworth, who's a, a good friend of mine, who has got a background in uh, youth work. And I used to work as a youth worker. 
And he's talk, talked about trauma-informed practice for these young people who are involved in county lines. Uh, and you think, is there preemptive stuff that you can do earlier with young people to help hopefully prevent them going into the prison estate in the future? And is that work happening? And, you know, if there's not, what could that look like? Is Have you got any ideas around that if it's not happening? I think a lot of the, I think, again, that's another really great question. And, and I think you're spot on. And sadly, I think what we've seen and because as a consequence of austerity is we've seen mm. the elimination of youth projects, which were really absolutely necessary. You know, I'm, I, I find it quite tiresome that we're hearing about more prison places being built. You know, at the end of the day, I think we send too many people to prison. We send people to prison who are not going to achieve anything out of it because um, they're in prison for fairly petty crimes they're not going to have the time to do any treatment um, because they'll be there for quite a short stay we're dislocating them from their families when they go there and you know if they had a job when they went to prison they're not going to have a job when they get out so I don't yeah. see more imprisonment as the solution and actually instead of investing that money in more more jail beds I think it'd be far preferable to invest it in families supporting families and helping family you know most parents even the ones who are abusive don't actually wish to be an abusive parent they want to do better um, when you've got poverty that brings out the worst in people if you're if you're frightened about how you're going to feed your family um, then you're living with that level of stress there are there are some people who will be aggressive because they're living with more stress than they would be mm. ordinarily and obviously that doesn't count for all violence but actually and the other thing with the county lines that you mentioned you know quite often when I speak to men in prison who've got involved in gangs and drug dealing and all that sort of stuff they're often men who've been looking they were looking as boys for father figures or a way to belong and feel safe and actually they were groomed into that in the same way that you know you see these um in fact we've had the stories about say what that happened in Rochdale and Rotherham where the young girls yeah. end up having relationships with older sexually sexually abused in those relationships but they thought the men were their boyfriends and mm -hmm. you see something very similar happening with young young boys they think these older youths and men are their friends that they want to help them out they're taking them under their wing but they're not they're exploiting them but, but of course because they're kids they don't recognize that and actually the more that we provide young young men and increasingly young women with you know positive male role models or you know people youth workers that they can people they can build positive relationships with and get support from um i think you know that's the way forward not building more prison beds mm. Because I think um, community football, you know, the, the clubs, uh, the professional clubs who have these community settings, a lot of youth work is being outsourced to them now. And you can almost see that if them as a club bought Yoshi Wave glasses, it could be used across multiple settings rather than just mm. in the elite performer. It could also be, well, in a community setting, we might do something in a youth work setting where these young people can wear them and it can help them regulate um, their feelings, their emotions, which might make them more willing to explore at that time, you know, what's happened in my past, what would I like my future? And it could just open up that, that conversation because if they're going to outsource it to clubs, I think it has to be done properly. You know, youth workers had to be really skilled when I worked in the youth service. And I, I was from a sporting background, but I was alongside guys who were really trained in youth work. 
that needs to happen as well, I think, because uh, they lost a lot of good people when they started to withdraw the funding in and around that. And went into private practice themselves, offering training or education in schools and had to, you know, draw down funding to make that happen. So if you could see um, a future or a future uses of the Roshi way, you know, what sort of things would you like people to to utilize it for? You know, is there anything you you see it being a really good fit that we haven't considered here today on the podcast? Uh, I mean you name some that you name a really use really um viable use of them there in the sense of they are because they're they're easy to easy to use. You could stick even if you were concerned about COVID for instance, you can stick them in a, a, a blue light machine to to be sterilized. So actually they can be used by multiple people mm. and you would only you would only want you can use them for long periods of time if you want to but you would only most people would probably only want to use them for 20 minutes half an hour um so they could be used by multiple people within one one project mm. Uh, mm. very very easily i've used them with a couple of people prior to sessions because they're people who got quite anxious um in sessions and also some people have used them after sessions because before they've gone home because they wanted to get themselves you know they've worked really hard in that but actually then have felt like actually they would benefit from uh, people enjoy them at the end of the day mm. they make people feel good and i unfortunately wasn't you know wasn't using them at the the time of being in the prison and it's very very difficult to get technology into the prison so the fact i got the neurooptimal in there i considered a massive achievement but the neurooptimal you could see staff used to we used to use them with the patients the prisoners and at lunchtime staff were able to use the glasses themselves and uh, not the glasses the neurooptimal themselves as a well-being mm. um investment and you could literally walk around and you could see who just used them because their face was calm they looked serene you know like the rest of us that might be frowning or looking mm. looking stressed and so actually staff felt valued by having the, this opportunity to to engage in this as well it's very difficult to give perks to people who mm. are working in frontline services where there isn't much money um but actually having something that contributes to your sense of well-being i think counts a lot for people because people staff do recognize when they've had some opportunity that they wouldn't ordinarily have um so yeah yeah because I, I i'm thinking now um I, i'm on government contract portals and stuff like this to try and access funding for mental health first aid courses. And you think, well, actually, they're always looking for things to help um, frontline staff in ambulances or doctors to have some sort of well-being. And you think, well, actually, lots of well-being things are episodic um, and don't factor in a circle of things where you could go, well, you could have mental health training, you can have mediation, you can have um, therapy, you can have an employee assistant program. You could also have this digitized glasses offer or NeuroOptimal within a place where you can go, actually, it's, it's so worthwhile someone going into that room for 20 minutes and just recharging than it is getting them at threat of burnout. Uh, you know, uh, and that's that, that I think in, from a financial perspective of reducing churn, people leaving the industries too soon, there, there could be uh, real value in trying to offer that as a well-being or part of a well-being strategy. Would you think the NHS would benefit from it? Absolutely. I think um, I think all of these agencies um, could benefit, you know, any kind of like frontline service, you know, the blue light services. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that's important to say about the Roshi Wave glasses is people get an immediate 
benefit in terms of you literally feel better after the mm. the 20 minutes half an hour of using them but also what's what what happens over time is that your brain learns what it's like to feel in that calm flow state and it likes it so actually it you start noticing when you're getting out of that state and then you can implement strategies like you know the the nasal breathing for instance to try and get yourself back into a state of regulation because you find it much easier to recognize as you're as you're getting out of your window of tolerance because I had a colleague at the FA and she started to get really quite into polyvagal theory mm -hmm. um, for footballers and trying to yeah. work out how they could support it. We had a, uh, uh, an ex-colleague of mine on from Arsenal on the other day who mm -hmm. works in the pre-academy and he did his master's linked to, you know, the vagus nerve and mm -hmm. trying to work out, well, how can we help footballers regulate their, you know, emotional state better? And you just think, well, if there's a ready-made product there where, you know, Money's no object to some of these huge clubs. You think that they really should be starting to think about that within their academy setups, but also then in the first team environments, because they've got usually everything there as well. And it's, it could just yeah. be a lack of awareness on their, their behalf that they're not fully aware of these other options that are out there. So we do get a football audience, you know, listening to us because of uh, my background and the people that we've had on this podcast uh, guests. So hopefully... Yeah, people will find these and some clubs will be looking for um, at least trying them, at least trying them. Yeah, out well, saying, yeah, I'd be, you know, ha happy is. to go and do happy to go and do taster days for people to try these technologies mm. and see what they think. The, you know, the safe and sound um, protocol, which is the other listening thing that was actually developed by Stephen Paul, just got a massive evidence base to support its effectiveness mm. um you know so working on the vagus nerve by exercising the middle ear muscles but certainly you know i'd be very open to going and, and running well-being days for people to try some of these technologies and see if they think that they could work for them well i know the premier league and the lfe with the program that i do where i assess for pearson these young people they're mm -hmm. always getting people in to do workshops for them you know, and it will be about nutrition, psychology, health. So you think, well, actually, they could just get a group of young people in. Uh, they're 18s usually. And just say, we're going to try, you know, the Roshi Wave glasses to just get uh, an experience of what that feels like for us in relation to the benefits for us and then see see what goes from there so I, i'm really hopeful that someone will take you up on that and even with the in the fa setup they used to really put money towards uh england camps and international camps so you think it, it's another part of psychology that i think marginal gains if this can get us a one percent marginal gain you know like dave brailsford we used to talk about you think it wouldn't surprise me if people are going yeah. let's let's reach out and try and and, and at least try it and be open to try it and you know get feedback from it so uh, uh, you know what I've, I've really enjoyed the variety of what we spoke about here today uh dave it's been fascinating isn't it it's been really you know, good yeah we've touched on so many different things i don't know if you've got any final questions for naomi dave or well what i was going to ask was um your private practice that there will be people listening to this that want to find out more um obviously we've talked about some of the people you work with are kind of i suppose this might not be the correct term to use but they're pushed towards you but we know and i know from people i know and everyone will know people are more concerned about their mental health um how can they go about getting in touch with you and also 
you know, what kind of services can they get from your private practice? Because the, I think part of it is, is people don't know what's out there. And, and if they don't know what's out there, they don't know where to go to get that sort of help. Absolutely. I, you know, I encourage people to reach out for, you know, having a consultation in the first place because actually different people need different things. And mm. for some people that might be a course of therapy and often people would start with 10 sessions and hope that that would be enough. Some people have therapy over much longer, longer periods. But I'd say even though people have often come to me for therapy because they felt a bit pushed into it, that isn't yeah. why they've stayed. They've stayed because they mm. recognise that actually they can stand to gain out of, out of personal therapy. And, you know, they've known that they've not been happy and um, they wanted a sense of peace and contentment wanting to improve things in their life and actually therapy can quite quickly show people that that's that that's possible um yeah. I, I do run some other course some, some other courses um that are focused around kind of like moving out of retirement and uh, moving into retirement sorry um for for people from any any sector um and also just about to launch something focused on how to stay calm um in because that's anxiety is one of the biggest problems that people have in terms of their their mental health um but with anybody i always offer a 20 to 30 minute free consultation you know you can email me via my website or at uh, naomi murphy at proton me um i can share those links mm -hmm. um but email me and i'm quite happily do a, a consultation over zoom um and see you know what what a treatment package might look like for you all right and just to remind us what's your website so anyone it, can have a quick look sure it's called octopuspsychology.com brilliant but uh yeah no it's been a real pleasure speaking with you we've we have discussed a wide <laughs> array of topics which it's always interesting and it's always good to get your perspectives on stuff that i'll be honest we don't know that much about and i know that our listeners would have found this fascinating thank um, you i i've you know, i've really enjoyed the fact that we've been able to talk about so many different things i've done quite a lot of podcasts focused on having worked in the prison system yeah uh, but really nice to be able to talk about such a broad range of of subjects so it's, yeah fantastic really enjoyed it and thank you for such thoughtful questions no, thank you, Naomi. And we always ask our guests, do they have a quote or a statement or a philosophy that they live by? Um, so is that something that you have? You know, some guests do, um, but some guests don't. So is that something that you, you have yourself? I do. I, if I may, if I could perhaps just read a poem. It's a very short poem. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, yeah it's a, but it's a poem, it's a, a poem by Rumi, um, and it's called The Guest House. Sorry, because I've just turned airplane mode off, of course. So now all the text yeah. Coming back in. Yeah. Yes, they are. So this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honourably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because he has been sent as a guest from beyond.
And the reason I, I like that poem is that, you know, really it's about appreciating all of our emotions. It's very easy to, mm. to think, you know, to feel good about experiencing happiness or joy or pride. Yeah. But actually, if you don't let yourself feel the sadness, the shame, the hopelessness at times, it takes the, it takes the shine off some of the other emotions. Um, mm. And life's much richer if you do allow yourself to feel all these feelings. Yeah, and, that, and that's wonderful. You know, it's a nice way to finish the podcast because a big thing that I uh, have heard is anger and how sometimes we need to express anger, but it's, it can be frowned upon, mm. um, especially if men are expressing anger. Is that then viewed as them being abusive or this? Uh, but actually, sometimes we just need to express that anger uh, and maybe learning how to do that. Because when I first returned from Spain, I was extremely angry and I couldn't pinpoint why. Um, and how I expressed that wasn't always the best thing. So just having that philosophy of, you know, it is an emotion, we need to express it, but then work through it, I think is important because it's something I've tried to push onto my 11-year-old son about. Look, I'm happy for you to be angry and express that, but we have to try and then just discuss how to do it in a way that is not, you know, too harmful for other people in and around you as well. So I really, I really like that poem. We've not had that before, good, Dave, have yeah. 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 Um, so thank you for that, Naomi. We really enjoyed, you know, you being on. And again, the time's whizzed past. Yes, it <laughs> has. Looking at the clock now. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, yeah. wow, it's 10 to 6 already. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah, and uh, we really do hope that people do seek you out and uh, want to access the services, but also the glasses the book hopefully and listen to your podcast because yeah you know it's great to be a guest on there and i see it from following you on linkedin the array of great guests that you do get mm. on and it's always worthwhile people you know dipping in and, and learning more about that vast field uh, uh of interest that you and your fellow guests have on there so thanks very much for your time again Naomi. 